0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you get settled, grab your Bible and make your way to the Old Testament book of Ezra. We are going to be wrapping up our series on the book of Ezra this morning and by God's grace, making our way through the salient points of chapter 9 and 10. So for that to happen, let's pray very quickly, because if you've been here for any length of time, you know me going through two chapters is going to take the work of God. So let's pray, and and we'll ask his blessing on the time and his word this morning. Father, we thank you again for the rich privilege we have of gathering together here, uh, brought together by your Spirit, that by the miraculous work, that you do when we gather and your word is taught, you would bring our hearts into a place of increasing surrender to your truth, that we might better reflect the affections and the character of your son, that we might better be your faithful presence in this city. So we ask that you would do that miraculous work in our time together this morning for your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are Few things in life uh, that I think are as beautiful or as moving as standing on the shore of the ocean and looking out at the expansiveness in front of me. Something so large, so magnificent, it stretches beyond what my eye can even begin to conceive. And then in the stillness of that moment, being able to really hear and and feel the crashing of the waves and the lapping of the waves— I utterly detest sand, I think it might be part of the fall, (laughs) but I'm willing to endure it and all of its irritation, because in the presence of something so majestic to my mind, I can quite literally feel my body physically begin to unwind, knots begin to get untied, To an untrained eye, the beauty of something like that can be very distracting, though. For those like myself who didn't grow up by the ocean, who only occasionally visit the ocean, the tide always looks more manageable from the shore than it is in reality. You know, it's not until you actually step out into the water and into the waves that you begin to realize and and feel and actually experience their power. You see, now as we're taking our kids to the ocean, we're having to realize that, that there are flags that they put out that you've got to pay attention to. Because in the midst of such majesty and beauty, there are powerful forces at times at work that might threaten to take you under, roll you under, for yards upon yards. There are forces at work at times where there are tides that you can't see if you don't know what you're looking for that can quite literally rip you out from the shore and take you out to the water. Friends, this is the way it is with sin. Sin very often holds out a beauty that masks a very real and present danger lurking below it. It's often not until we're caught up in it that we begin to realize and experience its devastating power. As we come to the end of our journey through the book of Ezra, this book closes with an account that will help us on this side of the cross come face to face again with the dangers of sin And yet at the same time, in God's grace and mercy to us as his people, we are going to get a glimpse of how, in the midst of such a sinful undertow and current, you and I can actually respond. So I'm going to do the best that I can to carry that metaphor through as far as I can, but I'm really bad about mixing metaphors. So we'll start with the first metaphor and see how far we can take it through the chapters. What then is the riptide? What is the danger that is threatening here in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 to pull the hearts of God's people out away, to carry the hearts and the affections of God's people away? Friends, as we come to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, you and I are confronted with the ever-present power and reality of spiritual adultery. Listen to how Ezra begins in chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and they said the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, you can see just how expansive this really is, right? It's the people of Israel, but it's it's the priests and the Levites too, spiritual leaders as well. They have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Very important phrasing there. They have not separated themselves from these peoples and the abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this, what's the next word right there? you got to say it out loud. I'm going to make sure you notice it. Faithlessness. That is the issue at hand in this situation, In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. You see, God had already told his people decades, centuries before, when he covenanted to be their God and for them to be his people, when he carried them out of slavery into the land that he had promised, he had told them that when they get to the place that he had promised, they were not to make a covenant with the people of the nations, you can go back and read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 7 or, or Exodus chapter 34. God says, Make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. In Exodus chapter 34, he said, They could prove to be a snare to you, to your affection. You see, the peoples of the lands would worship their false gods in what the Old Testament repeatedly called detestable detestable and abominable ways. Pick a people listed there and a worship of a god of that land and you will find some of the most egregious things you can imagine. The false gods of the lands were were worshipped through extreme superstition in some places, child sacrifice in others, ritual prostitution in some, And the problem at hand in Ezra chapter 9 is that God's people had not separated themselves from those abominations. You see, you've got to be very careful when you read the start of Ezra chapter 9 because for centuries, people have taken this beginning of this chapter, twisted it around as a proof text for something they wanted to argue that is not the point of what God's trying to say. This is not a text about interracial marriage you realize only a hundred years ago that was a predominant way that this text was referenced in the church. If you go back and read the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament, you'll find cases over and over again where peoples from the lands, different nations than Israel, had become incorporated into God's people because they had separated themselves from the detestable practices of their land and had taken upon themselves confidence and faith in Yahweh and the one true God. You'll find stories, even like Moses and Ruth, of those who had spouses that were not Israelites but their spouse had separated themselves from the abominable or detestable practices of their land and had taken for themselves confidence and faith in Yahweh, the one true God. Stay in Ezra. Don't even have to go anywhere else. Back in chapter 6 Rayshawn covered this a few weeks ago. Back in chapter 6 when God's people celebrated Passover finally back in Jerusalem, you'll read in verse 21, Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, but also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. The problem in chapter 9 is that God's people all the way up the chain to the priests had not separated themselves from the abominations, the false worship of the gods of the lands. The issue at hand is one of covenant faithfulness, spiritual fidelity to God. In fact, in chapter 9, that word I made you say out loud, faithlessness, it's repeated five, I can't remember, five or six, I should have written it down, five or six times in Ezra chapters 9 and 10 used either as faithlessness or unfaithful. In the entire Bible, this word translated faithlessness or unfaithful is only used to talk of the covenant infidelity of God's people. It's never used in the Bible to reference the sin of those who do not believe in the one true God. It's only used to talk of the spiritual faithlessness of God's people. So the issue at hand is one of spiritual fidelity. It's one of spiritual adultery. God's people were giving themselves over to the detestable practices, the false worship of the lands. Now lest you think that's something that happened way back here and we've got to figure out how to twist it around to make it a reality for us, over here spiritual fidelity the undertow of spiritual adultery is as real and present a danger for you and i now as it was for israel then in fact if you were going to flip over in your new testament go to it later this week you don't have to go to it right now i'll tell you about it in second corinthians chapter 11 The Apostle Paul uses this metaphor of marriage to help God's people understand the nature of our relationship to Christ. That Christ is the husband, the church is his bride. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul assumes the posture in the metaphor of the father of the bride. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of a jealousy for the affections of the church, for the affections of the bride, not to be seduced away from their commitment, from their love, for their affection for the groom, for Jesus. Paul recognizes the ever-present danger that exists for God's people, for their hearts to be seduced by what he calls false lovers, for other things to draw and pull the affections of our heart and the desires of our heart away from Christ. It's spiritual adultery. It's as ever-present a danger for us now as it was for Israel then. I love how Tim Lane talks about this in his book, How People Change. Tim Lane says, why do you and I worship other things in place of Christ? He said, quite simply, we worship what we find attractive. We allow many things to eclipse the beauty of Christ. We devote our hearts to our jobs, to other people to a state of mind like comfort or security, maybe success, power, peace, maybe even money. But if you are married to Christ, the core of your present life is not your personal happiness, it's your spiritual purity. Like any other marriage, the big issue is your fidelity. Will you remain faithful to Jesus or will you seek fulfillment elsewhere? Spiritual purity, single-minded devotion and obedience figure more prominently because of your marriage to Christ. Whether good or difficult things happen to you, your attention must remain riveted to Jesus. So in Ezra chapter nine or 10, the, the tide that threatens to pull Israel under, it's the same threat that you and I face today: the threat of unfaithfulness, of spiritual infidelity. So how then should you and I respond when our unfaithfulness is exposed? When we find ourselves caught in that riptide, threatened to be pulled away, how should we respond? Well, that's what the rest of Ezra chapters 9 and 10 help us to see. What we're going to see as we walk through it, what I want you to notice this week as you read more slowly through it, since time doesn't allow us to read every single word, the way out, of sin's riptide, is through grace-driven repentance. The way out of sin's riptide is through grace-driven repentance. That's what we'll see if we can slowly begin to piece together what's happening here in 9 and 10. I say it's grace-driven repentance Because from the start to the end, the motive, the driver of what is happening when you and I recognize ourselves caught in such a situation and want to find our way out of that situation, from start to end, it's driven by the grace of God. Watch this repentance starts as God convinces you of your sinfulness. Ezra chapter 9, pay very specific attention to verse 1. Is it up there? Is it working? Look at verse 1. After these things had been done, who said something? What does it say? The officials. It wasn't Ezra. Ezra doesn't say, this I see about you. This I see in your life. This God has against you. What he says is that the officials came to me and said, this is a reality in our hearts. This is a reality in our lives. This is a reality present in us. What happened? Ezra chapter 7, if you were here when Rayshawn taught it, Ezra chapter 7 says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Verse 25 of chapter 7 said, God told Ezra, that all who did not know of his laws and statutes, he was to teach them clearly. Ezra had been preaching God's word faithfully and clearly. Ezra had been communicating and teaching God's word to God's people. And guess what? God did the very thing he said he would always do. And in the faithful teaching, communicating, proclaiming of his word to his people, God brought their sinfulness to light it's why we say around here in a hundred different ways as often as we can we believe that god's word working through god's spirit is god's chief or primary means for the establishment and the ongoing maturity of his people ezra wasn't going from tent to tent house to house flipping over as many rocks as he can trying to find all the places where god's people were unfaithful he simply taught god's word And God, in his grace, exposed the people's unfaithfulness to them. Grace-driven repentance starts when God convinces you of your sinfulness. And when God convinces you of your sinfulness, he leads you to actually grieve over its presence. That's what you see happening. If you keep reading in verse 3, As soon as I heard this, Ezra said, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled my hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. Now real quick, anyone who tweezers their eyebrows, get a handful of that and yank it out. That's what it feels like to yank out hair from a beard from the top of the head. That's what Ezra's done and it's starting to pile up next to his feet. Verse 4 says, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So now God's people are trembling because Ezra has taught them his word, taught them his statutes, God has revealed to them his glory and what he calls of his people and they realize they've transgressed. They realize the affections of their heart have been drawn away and now as it's been exposed, God is helping them to be able to grieve over it and they sit trembling with Ezra at the reality of this sin in them. And verse five says, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. I want you to notice something here, and it's something you can reflect on later on in this week as you think about it and take some time to really work it through. But in this response that Ezra gives, when the sinfulness of God's people is brought to light, when he begins to grieve over its presence, what you get in these verses right here, just verses five and six and seven, you get a snapshot of what true Christian empathy actually looks like. Ezra, upon hearing about the sinfulness of the people, we have no indication in the book that Ezra was guilty of the same thing. When Ezra hears of the sinfulness, he doesn't take a posture of superiority. He doesn't distance himself in self-righteousness from the rest of the people. He doesn't say, well, you should have known better. You should have done what I did. He doesn't distance himself from it at all. What does he do? He tears his cloak. He pulls out his hair. And when he cries out to God, he says, our iniquities, our sin, Our unfaithfulness has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra felt with God's people their offense against God. You see, a healthy repentance, a healthy grief comes as God helps you understand what Paul would say the sinfulness of sin really is. When he couldn't find a better word to describe it, he just said it's sinful. Grief like this over the presence of sin, when God graciously exposes it to you, it comes as you realize and understand just what sin is. You see, Ezra had come to rightly understand through God's word that their sin is first and foremost a violation of God's glory. Why blush, Ezra? Why so ashamed? Why grieve? Well, Ezra understood the inherent sinfulness of sin, in particular, the offense of the people's sin in light of the magnitude and glory of the one they'd sinned against. No one in modern times has helped me better understand this than a pastor many of you are probably familiar with. His name is John Piper. In Romans chapter seven, in a sermon on Romans chapter seven, I think, Ray, how long did you take to preach Romans Seven probably like six months on Romans 7, in one of his 10,000 sermons on Romans 7, dealing with the inherent sinfulness of sin. Piper said this in a sermon, "'What makes sin, sin, "'is not first that it hurts people, "'but that it blasphemes God. "'This is the ultimate evil "'and the ultimate outrage in the universe. "'The glory of God is not honored. "'The holiness of God is not reverenced. "'The greatness of God is not admired.'" The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. The infinite all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, the one who holds every person's life in being at this very moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. This is the ultimate outrage of the sinfulness of sin. He went on to ask something very telling. Why is it that people, you and I, Can become so emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and the injustice of man against man, and yet feel little to no remorse or even indignation that in our sin God is so belittled. Godly repentance, grace driven repentance, it starts as God exposes to us the presence of our own unfaithfulness. In light of who he is, the one in which we have turned our hearts from, he begins to help us grieve over the reality of the inherent sinfulness of our sin. God goes to great lengths throughout his word to help unmask for us, his people, over and over again just how deceitful sin is. To help us see just how defiling it is. To proclaim to us the damning consequences of it. Grace driven repentance, when God is at work exposing our sin and bringing us to a place of repentance, always passes through a grief for the inherent sinfulness and dishonoring of the glory and grace of God that our sin really is. Ezra wants us to understand from the first to the last. From the beginning to the end, painful though it may be, godly repentance is always a grace-driven process. It's the grace of God that exposes. It's the grace of God that brings the conviction. But it's the grace of God that we cling to that carries us through to the end. You begin to see a picture of this in the way that Ezra continues to pray in chapter 9. In verses 6 and 7, Ezra again confesses their sin before the Lord. God had exposed it to them. Now he he confesses it on behalf of God's people, confesses their faithlessness. But then in verses 8 and 9, Ezra moves from their covenant unfaithfulness, their infidelity, to the ever-present faithfulness of God towards his people. Watch this in verses 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet listen to him, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. As you keep listening, Ezra again goes back to the sinfulness, the inherent sinfulness of the sins of God's people. And now, as he's confessing, he's coming to terms with just how sinful that sin is in light of the steadfast love that God has always and continues to show to his people. Ezra will say, and we'll see it here in verses 10 through 15, he's beginning to see and respond to the presence of the sinfulness of God's people in light of the mercy that God has continued to show him. Ezra says, we are getting so much less than what we actually deserve. Look at verse 13. After all that's come upon us for our evil deeds, exile, having been taken away, and for our great guilt, seeing that you are God, have punished us less Than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this. In light of your grace, in light of your mercy, in light of your ongoing forbearance, it's the grace of God and the kindness of God that has exposed to them their sinfulness and brought them to this place of repentance. It's the same thing Paul's gonna tell a church in Rome. One commentator says he thinks in eternity, if God would so allow him to do it, he believes that the kindness of God and the grace of God has filled more buckets with tears than the law ever has. Ezra, reflecting upon the steadfast love, kindness, patience, mercy, and glory of God to his people in spite of their continued unfaithfulness, is being able to help people see the inherent sinfulness of their sin. It's grace from first to last. How much more so for you and I? On this side of the cross, should you and I be driven to repentance as we come face to face with owning our inherent unfaithfulness in light of God's continued steadfast love and faithfulness that he shows us in his son? We have no righteousness of our own to cling to or plead before him. You know and I know it would take an eternity for each of us to pay the weight, the cost, the debt of our unfaithfulness to God. But while we were yet sinners, God sent Jesus at the right time to die for the unfaithful. God sent his son to save sinners. Grace exposes. Grace drives us to grieve. Yet, grace, grace carries us all the way through. Grace doesn't leave us in the riptide. Content to acknowledge it, content to see it, content to feel bad about it, content to grieve over it, grace drives us to respond. It drives us to act. That's what we see in chapter 10. As chapter 10 starts, you can see that this this repentance, this conviction, this grieving, it wasn't just Ezra's alone. The people were coming to this kind of conviction under the preaching of God's word. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God. We've married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Do you notice how neither Ezra nor Shekinah made any excuses for it? None of them tried to offer up some kind of circumstantial reason for why it was there. Like, you I know, mean, we were in exile in Babylon for like 50 years. What else did you want me to do? They didn't give the sin a new name to make it more palatable to their mind and to the ears of other people. Grace had exposed the inherent sinfulness of sin in light of God's ongoing and eternal glory and mercy to them. And there's nothing left for them to do at that point but to own it. And so they owned it in hope because they knew the steadfast love and mercy of the God who had covenanted himself to them. And in light of this, grace grace drives them to turn away from their sin now watch how they do it here back in chapter 10 verses 2 and 3 when Shekinah comes to Ezra and he says we have broken faith with God we've married foreign women from peoples of the land he says in verse 3 let us therefore make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And in verses six and seven, Ezra hears what Shekinah says. Remember, God was the one that exposed his sin to his people. It was his people that came to Ezra and said, we have sinned, we have transgressed against the Lord. It is Shekinah who comes to Ezra and says, here's what we need to do in response, in repentance, in turning away from this sin. So Ezra takes it and he goes and he prays and he fasts. And in verses nine through 12, he gathers all the people together and he calls out their sin and he calls them to respond. Verse nine, Ezra says, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and he said to them, you've broken faith, You've married foreign women. You've so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answer with a loud voice. That's true. It's so. Guilty. We'll do it, just as you've said. No excuses put forward. No attempts at trying to redefine what actually happened. Godly repentance always involves a turning away from our sin. But here's the thing. We tend to read this and go, pump the brakes just a little bit, right? That's like going from zero to 100. Where's 50? Like, Can't we come up with something else? Well, the simple and the succinct solution to why they did what they did, often doesn't satisfy our curiosity and our sensibilities. But one commentator said, was their decision here more damaging than continuing to give themselves over to the abominations of the land? Are we taking the seriousness of their sin seriously? Should they have just kept on, mixing their devotion, going down the same road to compromise that had landed them in exile already? In light of God's glory and the seriousness of their sin, they chose in repentance to respond radically. In fact, there was a a physical demonstration of this in the pulling out of Ezra's beard and the pulling out of his hair. This is what has to happen to sin. When it is exposed in us, when we grieve over it, when we understand it in light of God's glory and steadfast love, we've got to turn away from it. It's got to get out. We've got to act against it. Think it was John Owen who said, we've got to be killing it or it will be killing us. Ezra fasted, He, he prayed. And in light of the people's confession and in light of the people's repentant desire to respond rightly, Ezra put together a practical plan to help him to do it. If you read the rest of Ezra 10, you'll realize that there were about 110 different situations they had to deal with. So Ezra realizing not only because of the weather, but because of the number, he had to get the elders and the leaders of the tribes involved. So the elders split the cases up and they went to each person individually and they helped them through the process. It took three months for them to bear this fruit in keeping with the repentance in their hearts. But some still loved their sin too much. Chapter 10, verse 15 says, Only Jonathan, the son of Ashael and Josiah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. In light of the sinfulness of their sin and the inherent glory of God that was offended as their affections were drawn away, they acted radically in turning away from their sin. So as Ezra 10 grounds, For every Christian now on this side of the cross that finds himself married to someone who does not follow Jesus is it grounds for them to pursue a divorce on that fact that's how Ezra 10 gets used all the time is Ezra 10 grounds for a follower of Christ who is married to someone who is not a follower of Christ is Ezra 10 now the foundation for them to pursue a divorce based on that fact no no On this side of the cross, in light of the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of his people, the Apostle Paul would tell the church in 1 Corinthians 7, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. On this side of the cross, in light, in particular of the indwelling presence and reality of the Holy Spirit in you, no, as your affection and your devotion is rightly first and foremost given to me, as my beauty and my steadfast love is what your heart cherishes most, your faithful presence there is the means by which I may draw them to myself as well. No. When you and I come to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, And we have to follow the train of thought through both chapters to what's actually happening and what it is showing us in light of God's grace now for us on this side of the cross. The overwhelming thing you and I have to deal with here is whether or not you and I are going to be every bit as ruthless in our own heart with regards to anything that would rival our devotion and our affection to Jesus. In fact, Jesus encouraged such ruthlessness with sin. Jesus encouraged his followers not to toy with sin, not to think that you can tame it, not to think that you can manage it, not to think you can control it, not to think you're the exception to it, but to be ruthless with it. Friends, as God exposes places of faithlessness in your own heart, I want you to ask yourself, Is it your habit to try to make an excuse for it? Is it your habit to try to argue some kind of circumstantial reason for why it's there, why you're doing it, and why maybe it's okay? Is it your habit to try to find a way to redefine it or minimize the severity of it in your own mind or in the mind of others? If God's grace is exposing the reality of your own spiritual infidelity to you if he brings you to a place of owning it and of confessing it of grieving not only over its presence and its implication in the lives of other people but grieving over its offense to the lord are you following through in your repentance grace doesn't leave us content in acknowledging the danger Grace doesn't leave us content in acknowledging the presence. Grace doesn't leave us content in simply grieving over it. Grace leads us to turning it away. Friends, in light of the sinfulness of sin, in light of the damning realities, the dangers of sin, you and I are always going to look funny to a watching world. We're always going to be turning from some things and to other things that other people don't understand. But in light of the inherent sinfulness of sin, does it really matter what anyone else thinks if for the affections and the purity of your devotion, you may need to get rid of your internet? Does it really matter If someone looks at that and says, well, that's just crazy. In light of the inherent sinfulness of sin, the danger of the undertow seeking to draw your affections away from the Lord. Does it matter if anyone else around you goes, well, you seem a bit zealous and it's not really necessary for you to have to go to that person and tell them, you know what, i told other people things that weren't true about you. I use my words to paint a false picture of who you were in other people's minds. Can you please forgive me? Well, that seems a little bit zealous and unnecessary. What difference does it make what other people think? In light of the inherent sinfulness of sin, maybe you need to follow through with that repentance and go to the people you spoke to and say, I spoke to you falsely about this person. You may say that wasn't necessary for me to come to you. You may forgive me for... I've got to do this. Maybe you recognize that God has given you a finite number of days on the earth, a finite number of breaths that you're going to take, and he intends for you and I to live every single moment for his glory and the enriching, to be the enriching presence of his grace in other people's lives, but guess what? You realize what your heart really loves is your own comfort, and inherently, what you really want is your own definition of laziness, What difference does it make if some people think you're being a bit overreactive? If you need to go to a couple people and confess this to them and say, Can you help me? Can you help me figure out how to better steward the time, the days, the hours, the opportunity that God has given me so I can use them wisely? friends grace doesn't leave us in the place where we can see our inherent sinfulness grieve over it not just the horizontal consequences but even grieving over the offense that it is to God that we might sit in it it leaves us to turn away from it this is where i think so many of us even in the contemporary church tend to fall short with repentance in light of the eternal offensiveness to god's glory and the deception and defilement of our own hearts. in light of the cross, Ezra 9 and 10 ask us now if we would be every bit as ruthless with sin as God's people were then. God wants our whole self, our whole heart. It's a call to a single-minded devotion. What is challenging his supremacy? What is rivaling his beauty in your heart? What riptide is threatening to pull your affections out to sea? Friends, in exposing our sin and and bringing us to understand it and grieve over it, don't miss that grace-driven repentance ultimately magnifies Jesus as it exposes our weakness and dependency this morning as we prepare in just a moment to respond to God's word, I want you to consider your response in light of God's grace. Repentance is all of grace because as one writer said, grace makes our sin immense in our eyes by showing us the hideousness of the cross that was necessary before God could favor us with his forgiveness. As you come forward this morning, as you're invited to take a piece of bread, Remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sin and dip it in that cup of juice, remembering his blood poured out for your forgiveness. By faith this morning, take it and eat it, knowing that in grace, your unfaithfulness was placed on him. Grace makes God's mercy huge because it reveals the price God paid to bestow that grace upon us. Like Ezra, we know we deserved judgment. Yet we know of God's steadfast love and mercy to his people. The cross magnifies this mercy because we're reminded of the unimaginable suffering of the Son of God, who in our place fulfilled all of our faithfulness and yet was forsaken in our place for all of our infidelity. Friends, grace-driven repentance it, it magnifies Jesus because it so clearly helps to expose our own weakness and dependency. Your heart, my heart, it's so prone to wander. It's so prone to be drawn away. That even a time like this, God in his grace is giving us together a moment to be reminded A moment to see a moment to savor his mercy i'm going to pray for us then i'm going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on his word the musicians will come up they'll begin to play we'll invite you forward to respond by receiving communion we'll sing and we'll be sent out from here as his people father we thank you this morning that our repentance our transformation ultimately in the end is not even our work it's grace from the beginning. It's grace all the way to the end. We ask for the glory of your name and the good of those you have sent us to, to love and serve. That you would help us to see the inherent sinfulness of our sin, our, our own proneness to wander, our own proneness to be unfaithful. Help us to see it, to, to grieve it. But Lord, in grace to turn away from it. Lord, we ask that you would do this for